In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would all the kids up through the ninth grade please come forward. to that low. So let me, tell you, I'll, let me tell you about this. I was making some cookies at home the other day. Cookies? I like cookies. And I have this yellow bowl with a handle on it, and it looks kind of weird, but I put in a half a cup of sugar, and then I went to get the flour, and I came back, and the sugar was all over the counter. I thought, how in the world? And so I put in the, a cup of flour, and I go to get some cinnamon, and I come back, and the flowers kind of all over the counter. I thought, what? I put it in the bowl, and I lifted the bowl, and it has a bunch of holes in the bottom. Can you believe that? <laughs> you ever seen a bowl like that? A bowl with a bunch of holes in the bottom? What's the purpose of that? Why would you have holes in the bottom of a bowl? Oh, so, so it's a what? A sifter. It's a sifter. Uh, I wish I had known that before I started those cookies. I never got those cookies made. Mm. But I had a lot of cookies during Soul in the City, so I probably didn't need them anyway. You know, um, so a bowl is to hold everything together is what you're saying. But a sifter... Is to you said let the water out of something if you want to, like separate something, yeah. like what what like like spaghetti, no. and like if you have boiled yeah. spaghetti and you pour the spaghetti and the water into the sifter, the spaghetti comes through and the water stays in, right? No. <laughs> oh, the spaghetti stays in and the water goes yeah. through. That's right. Not okay. Spaghetti. So it separates it. It separates it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You you like spaghetti? No, you don't like spaghetti. So, so, so um, I think that this is what I wish. I wish that there was something that could separate the bad stuff inside of me from the good stuff inside of me. Just kind of just put me in that bowl or sifter and just let the bad stuff and the sin run out and let the good stuff stay there. Wouldn't that be neat? What? Like, kind of like spaghetti and water, right? Yeah. Let, 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 let the evil stuff and the bad stuff in me, the sin, just kind of sift out like, like, like the water. That would be really neat. Is there anything like that? Is there anything that can make that happen? What? God. God. And so do we need to do anything to make that happen? Like, do we need to say, God, I'm sorry, or anything? Yeah. Yeah, we do then, don't we? We do need to do something, don't we? I mean, God, God's always going to offer his love and his forgiveness, but we have to be responsible to say, God, I am so sorry for 
thinking those thoughts. I'm so sorry for doing the things I've done that I shouldn't have done, which is why we have confession every Sunday, asking God to forgive us for our sins, saying, God, I'm so sorry for doing those things. And we always do something. We always do something that goes against God. It's, it's called that sin nature inside of us. And, and as Christians, we pray, first of all, to God for forgiveness, and he forgives us. And then we pray to God for that he will make us more and more holy or sanctified so that we can do what God wants us to do and not what we want to do all the time. Because God has a plan for our lives. And sometimes my plan gets in the way of God's plan, and I need to work on that. And so I say, God, I am so sorry. Sometimes I just think that I have all the answers, but I don't. You have the answers, and so I give everything to you, Lord. It's all yours. And God helps me through those things. And he helps you through those things, too. So just like the spaghetti and the water separate through our confession, through our saying we're sorry to God, all that sin and that bad stuff goes away, and God just leaves the good stuff. Now, it comes back. I, I just, I'm 67 years old. I mean, 47 years old. <laughs> I almost had it mixed up. And, um, and, and it keeps coming back. But we, I have to keep saying, God, I'm sorry. I have to. And then God forgives me. And thank, thank goodness we have such a good God, huh? Who will always forgive us when we say we're sorry. Okay? So you go home and make some candy, okay? okay. And if you make cookies, bring me some cookies, okay? Okay. Okay. If you want to go get a packet for Mr. Music over there, Mr. Music, yeah, Mr. Music over there, you can do that as we listen to uh, Father Michael. I wonder if anyone's ever made spaghetti out of cookies. Cookies out of spaghetti? I'm not sure. Spaghetti cookies. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Father Michael Schwant. I'm the Associate Rector and Youth Minister here at St. Timothy's Anglican Church. If you're joining us for the first time this Sunday, I just want to say welcome. You may have walked by it on your way in, but I just want to draw your attention to the welcome desk that's in the lobby or the narthex of our church. Uh, in that welcome desk, there's lots of different gifts that we would love for you to take home with you. Particularly, there's a welcome folder that has lots of information about the church and what we have going on here and the ministries that you can get involved with. It should answer a lot of your questions that you may have about the church, but if there's anything that isn't answered there, feel free to come to myself or the clergy or the leadership, and we will do our best to answer your question. Uh, it would be normally appropriate, most of the time whenever I am up here to preach, uh, I would give some sort of brief introduction about maybe the liturgical season that we would find ourselves in and what makes this Sunday special compared to all the other Sundays that we celebrate here. Um, this Sunday is unique, but it's not unique for a liturgical reason. It's unique because it's actually my last Sunday here at St. Timothy's. Um, it has been my pleasure and my privilege to have served you all these last five and a half years, I think Stan and I finally counted up the months, since I came here as a brand new baby deacon back in January of 2018, I stepped off my honeymoon plane and landed here at St. Timothy's. 
And as I was reflecting about this season of change for not only my family, but also for the St. Timothy's family, uh, I was drawn to this famous passage in Ecclesiastes that you may have heard before that's read at a variety of different services for our own Anglican tradition. And it goes like this. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Brothers and sisters, it has been such a sweet time for myself and for my family to be here with you all here at St. Timothy's. Uh, but the Lord in his goodness has called myself and my family way to a wonderful parish up in Memphis, Tennessee, which we're excited about. Uh, also very sad to be leaving such a wonderful group of people behind us. And a large reason of why I am the minister of both word and sacrament that I am today is in no small part due to the love you have shown me and my family while I've been here at St. Timothy's. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you for loving me, and thank you for loving my family. But if you would do me the honor and the privilege of one last time as your associate rector, let's go to God's word together. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to get it out in front of you. If not, there should be some Bibles in the pews around you. There should also be a scripture insert in your bulletin. We're going to be in Romans 8. We're going to be walking through our epistle lesson for today. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. This is one of those chapters that maybe you have memorized. It's one of those ones that is kind of good to memorize. So if you have memorized it, well done, you know. If not, feel free to open up that Bible. That's not such a bad option as well. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 25. And there's lots of things we could extrapolate from this text, things that the Holy Spirit can instruct us in for our own training and righteousness. But there's two that I want to draw your attention to. And the first one is that uh, we are adopted. And that makes us co-heirs with Christ. We're going to look at what that means for our walk with Christ. And the second thing is that our future hope helps our present suffering, and our present suffering is going to help our future hope. We're going to look at what that looks like, and those are the two things we're going to draw our attention to. But before we jump in, I just want to briefly lay out the historical context and sort of the literary context for the book of Romans. It's so important anytime you're studying scripture to kind of know a little bit about the book that you're reading, right? So there's some context to understand what's being said. And First thing that we should know about the book of Romans, as was so eloquently said, is that it was written by Paul. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. Chances are, if you open the New Testament, there's a pretty solid chance you're going to wind up with Paul, right? Uh, what is uh, unique about Romans is that it kind of stands alone from most of the other books written by Paul. And the reason for that is, is that when Paul, oftentimes whenever he was writing what would become scripture, what would become the New Testament canon, he was often writing to a church that he himself helped to plant, that he himself helped start, right? So it would be like if Father Stan, back in the day, planted St. Timothy's and then was called away 
for whatever reason, but then would write us letters occasionally to tell us how things are going and instruction in certain questions that we may have about the faith, right? And that's a majority of what Paul's letters, what the books by Paul are about. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, these are all good examples of Paul kind of writing for specific situations, for churches that he's familiar with, right? Romans stands alone because A, it's the longest. Bonus fact, the New Testament Pauline letters are arranged from generally longest to shortest. That's why Romans is first and Philemon is last or close to last. Uh, but it also stands alone because Paul did not start the church in Rome. And what we know from scripture is Paul is actually traveling to the city in Rome because he's been arrested by the Roman authorities and one of the rights he had as a Roman citizen was to appeal to the emperor. So he's going to Rome to uh, fight for his appeal, also spread the gospel in Rome. So this is kind of his introductory letter to the church in Rome. And so the reason why Romans kind of stands alone is it's A, it's to a church he himself did not write, and B, it's one of the more well thought out and fleshed out thoughts of Paul that we have access to, right? And what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through his life makes it such a rich book to study. People have dedicated their life to studying just this one book, right? So there's a lot that we can gather, but what we're going to focus on today is just those two points that, again, I said that we are adopted and that our future hope helps our present suffering, there's lots we could get, but those are the two we're going to focus in on. So we're going to start with, we are adopted, and that makes us co-heirs with Christ. And we're going to start, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to verge verse 12 all the way through verse 17. That's about half of our text, all right? I'm reading from the NIV. You're probably reading from the ESV, the NRSV. That's good to introduce yourself to more translations, so don't panic if it's slightly different than what you're reading in front of us, okay? Verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are being led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now there's lots of pastors and mentors that I uh, can draw upon that I've read and that I've met personally. Um, one that I've not met personally, but uh, has a huge influence on me and my ministry was Dr. Timothy Keller. Uh, the late Dr. Timothy Keller, he just passed away a couple months ago. Um, really anything by him, if you find it, read it, because <laughs> he's just that good of an author. Uh, but there's a series of lectures that I particularly like to listen to called Questioning Christianity, and it's him explaining the Christian faith to a group of people that are largely non-Christian. Uh, it's in podcast form, highly encourage it. Uh, you to go listen to it. Um, but there's this story that he includes in that series that I find particularly poignant for what we're talking about today. And the story goes that there's the Russian czar. The story does not specify which Russian czar, but if you happen to have a favorite, go ahead and insert your favorite Russian czar, I guess, you know, if that helps with the story. But it's a story about the Russian czar and uh, a childhood friend of the Russian czars, right? So these two 
uh, boys grow up, and the Russian czar is particularly thankful for this boy's friendship because being czar can sometimes be a little lonely. You know, you're at the top, the royal family. So having a good close friend is something that he counted as a treasure of his, right? So these two boys grow up, they become adults, and they begin to get married, and they begin to have their own children. But tragedy strikes in the czar's friend's family first. Uh, tragically, he, his wife and him they gave birth to a son, but the wife tragically passes away in childbirth. And as the dad is struggling to raise this son by himself, tragically, he falls ill. And he knows his life is coming to an end, and so he's on his deathbed, and the Russian czar is there at his side because they're such good friends and he says uh, his friend says to the czar my friend will you please raise my son in my stead will you please raise my son as your own and the czar says absolutely absolutely i will you're my best friend i will raise your son as my own son and when the czar's friend passed away sure enough the czar kept his promise and adopted <clears throat> the son into his family and started raising him as his own son and tried to raise him as best as he can and provided a good education for him. And at the time, that probably meant a military education. So went to the uh, finest military academy in Russia and uh, did well. And so when he graduated from the military academy, this adopted son got attached to this famous general's uh, staff and this famous division. And he did so well, he was kind of placed as the general's uh, right-hand man. And part of the many responsibilities that this son has was actually keeping the, the, the books for the division, right? Of all the pay to all the soldiers and so on and so forth, all the things that needed to be kept track of all the accounts, if you will. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of the things that the son started to get into being in army life, being in camp life, uh, he started to get into gambling, right? But he was not a very good gambler, and so he started to accrue a lot of debt, Right? And at first, he was able to keep the debt uh, hidden from everybody else because he was able to cook the books a little bit. You know, he took a little off the top here and took a little off the top there and uh, was able to cover his debt that way, but he kept gambling, kept accruing more debt. And there was one day he was sitting in front of the books and he tried to figure out how he could hide this debt and he realized that the jig was up. In the morning, the general would come in and look at the books and realize what he had been doing all of these months, and his life and his career would be over, right? So the son, the only way that the son, the adopted son, the only way he sees out is to take his own life. Uh, but he's scared to do it, and so what he does is to work up the courage, he begins to drink. And he has one drink, then he has another drink, and he has another drink, and he has another drink, and before he realizes it, he just passes out. Unbeknownst to him, his adopted father, the czar, was one of those leaders kind of throughout history that liked to dress up in an ordinary soldier's uniform and walk amongst his troops to figure out kind of what the morale of camp was and try to figure out uh, things that he could do to better help his soldiers that were serving in his army, right? So this czar was dressed up as an ordinary soldier, as his custom, this specific night and he's walking through camp and what he decides is that he's actually going to go pay his son a visit. Surprise visit would be looking forward to an evening with his son without any sort of staff or retinue with him so he was really looking forward to the visit. So the czar wanders through camp, finds his adopted son's camp and walks in, finds his son passed out on the floor, sees the books there on his desk, takes a look at his son, takes a look at the books 
and realizes instantly what's been going on. And there's lots of ways that the czar could have reacted to that situation, right? There's lots of things that the son deserved, rightly deserved. But the czar looks at his adopted son and remembers all the promises that he had made. And so instead of sending his son to whatever sort of punishment that he deserved, what he did is he wrote a note. He wrote two notes and he sent one note and he placed it on the book. And then he sent another note off to the general. And all the note said is, I the czar make good this debt. I, the czar, make good this debt. And the story goes that the son woke up the next morning, sees the note on the books, and says, my father has seen me for who I really am, and he still loves me. My father has seen me for who I really am, and he still loves me. Brothers and sisters, whenever we just read in this portion of our scripture lesson for today from the book of Romans, whenever God says that we are adopted into God's family, whenever we are made co-heirs with Christ, that is no insignificant promise to God. That is no small consolation prize that you and I can take value in. Being adopted into a family is very important in the eyes of God. For example, if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and you read the genealogy that's listed there at the beginning of Matthew and how Jesus is counted in the family of David and how important that is to the promises that God himself made because God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would always be on the throne and would always be ruling over Jerusalem, right? One of the reasons and one of the ways that Jesus fulfills that promise that God made to David is through Joseph. The way that Christ is in David's family is through Joseph. And if you and I, whenever we read the Gospels, we know that technically Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, sure. But God considers him absolutely just as much his father as he himself is, right? Right? that he's adopted into this family, that's absolutely just as genuine and just as valid as any sort of biological relationship, right? And so whenever you and I are adopted into Christ's family, what that means is that whenever Christ looks at you, he sees you as a member of his family. He sees you and defines you by his son and sees you for who you could be and who you are going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. And what Satan wants you to do and the lies that Satan whispers into your ear is that Satan wants you to define yourself by your sin and by your deepest and darkest secrets. But whenever we are adopted into Christ's family, what we realize is that we are made perfect through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though we sin and we will continue to sin, when Christ and when God looks at you, he sees his son. We are adopted into Christ's family and we are made co-heirs with Christ. Now, you may be seated there and you're tracking with me so far and you say, all right, Father Michael, I see you, I hear you, I see the point you're making, all right? I'm adopted into Christ's family. That sounds good. That sounds all nice and peachy keen, but here's the thing, I still gotta go to work on Monday morning. That's still hard. 
I still got to go face my family on Monday morning. That's still hard. I still got to go to school on Monday morning. That's still hard. Church is all great. and We come to worship on Sunday morning and we hear God's word and we receive the sacraments and that's all good. But life keeps going on Monday morning. So what about that, Father Michael? Well, here's the good news I got for you. Whenever Paul was writing this book and the Holy Spirit through Paul, turns out he had that in mind too. So let's take a look at how Paul and the Holy Spirit addresses that particular question. We're going to be reading verses 18. We're going to pick up with verse 18. That's where it says, I consider that our present suffering, something along those lines is what you'll be reading. We're going to go through verse 25 to the end, all right? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, if you spent any time around me, it may have come up in conversation that uh, during college, uh, I was a competitive swimmer. So I was actually on my college swim team, made lots of wonderful friends, lots of wonderful memories from that time, right? Uh, but when you get to a certain level in really any sport, but particularly in swimming, there's a certain time whenever you have to start practicing more, right? It's kind of a running, you get better at a sport, so you have to practice the sport more. Um, but there's a certain time when you have to practice more, and so what that meant is that we had practice twice a day, right? So we had early morning practice, and we had afternoon practice or evening practice, depending on your class schedule for that semester, right? And so our morning practice was uh, every morning from 5.30 to 7.30, and then on Saturday it was 5.30 to about 9.30, you know, it was a long one on Saturday. Uh, lots of wonderful memories, much wonderful friends. One of them was Ben Donaldson, still the, one of my best friends. He and I had this little ritual that we would do every morning. Now, there's lots of things about swimming, but one of the things you may not realize about swimming is that for pools that are prepared for competition, right, that are kind of designed to be swam in for a competition, those pools are kept particularly cold. And the reason for that is because as you're swimming, you're actually getting hot and you're not realizing it, and so they want to keep you know, your body as cool as possible. But I'll tell you what, diving into that cold pool at 5.30 in the morning, whoo, that was hard. And it wasn't even necessarily the, the, the hard practice that we knew what was coming kind of after that. We knew that was happening, but that, that first dive into the cold pool was always so hard for us. But because that's what we had signed up for. Myself and my friend Ben, we always dove in into that cold pool and we would do our practice and then we would get up out of the pool and we'd drive ourselves off, so we'd go to have breakfast and then we'd come back and Ben and I, we had this little ritual that we would do, right? So we lived in dorms at the time and those of you who are familiar with dorm living know that it's just kind of like one big bathroom and there's shower stalls that are kind of right next to each other so Ben had his stall that he always went to, and I had my stall that I would always go to, and we would always take a shower at the same time after practice. And that warm shower, 
after being in that cold pool all morning, oof, that was a good shower. Then what Ben and I would do is we'd get out of that shower, we'd drive ourselves off, we'd put in our pajamas again, and he and I would always try to schedule our classes for later in the morning, like at 10 o'clock or like 11 o'clock, so that we could always take a post-practice nap before our classes, and the joke that he always had is that because we went to bed after practice, when we woke up again, it's like practice didn't even happen, and it was just a bad dream. <laughs> but I share with you that story because our enjoyment of the shower and the nap that Ben and I had after practice was enhanced because we had been to practice, because we had gone into the cold pool, because we had done all of those hard things, our enjoyment of the reward afterwards was enhanced, right? Even in a small way, that's true. Where if we had just taken a shower, sure, a shower is nice. If we had just taken a nap, sure, a nap is nice, right? But our enjoyment was so much higher because we had done those hard things in the morning, right? In the same way, whenever you and I, we go back to work on Monday morning, whenever we go back to our families on Monday morning, whenever we go to school on Monday morning, Christ knows the hardships that you have. And he sees the temptation and the struggling that you have. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what you see, Christ, because he took on flesh and dwelt among us, he understands our struggles, he understands our temptations, and in some ways probably even more intimately than we do. And so what Paul is saying is that he sees your suffering You are God's son or daughter. You're part of God's family. And so God sees you as your best self, if you will. But what God is going to do is going to take that suffering that you have right now and he's going to turn it on its head and he's going to use it to help enhance your joy and eternity forever. For just as if you had been in a cold winter's night and you come in and there's a warm fire there waiting for you, how much warmer does the fire feel because you had been cold outside, right? In the same way, the present sufferings that you have are going to enhance your enjoyment of eternity, brothers and sisters. The very tools of the enemy himself are going to be turned on their head and used as tools of God himself. And that is the promise that you and I have in Christ, that whenever we see the darkness and the brokenness of the world, we can hold on to a hope that we know we have in Christ Jesus that has been secured for us on the cross by his death and by his resurrection. And we can look at the struggles and the temptations we have and we can say, I know that God has already won. And even though my life may be hard, and I may struggle, and I may have temptation, and there may be dark times to my life, I know that there will be a day when the sun will shine and every right, every wrong will be made right and every tear will be wiped away. And all of the suffering that I'm going through right now will only make me happier when I get to the new heavens and the new earth. 
I wish I could sit here and promise you it'll be puppy dogs and rainbows for the rest of your life. But we all know that's not true. We've all gone through hard seasons in life. But the hope, but the hope we have, brothers and sisters, promises that we will have a most blessed and joyous future with Christ. So brothers and sisters, I don't know what future lies in store for you here all here at St. Timothy's. But as you enter into this new season, know those two promises that you have, that you are adopted into Christ's family. You are co-heirs with Christ. And that the present suffering will only enhance your future joy. I just want to end by saying thank you. Thank you for loving me well. Thank you for loving my family well. I love you all very much. And I will miss you all very much. But there will be a day when we will stand shoulder to shoulder again and we will worship Christ forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.